Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 22, the book of Romans, chapters 9 and 10. Last week, we concluded by reading Hosea chapter 2, which is the proof text that Paul used in Romans 9, verses 25 and 26, to help to explain how it is that on one hand, Israel is and remains God's elect, yet on the other hand, God's plan was always to show mercy to Gentiles, and offer them the same redemption that he offered to Israel. Yet as we read Hosea 2, it was clear that the chapter was explicitly referring to Israel and Judah, who together form the whole house of Israel, not to Gentiles. It was about Israel becoming unfaithful to her spiritual husband, Yehovah. And as a result, Yehovah removing Israel from his presence by means of an exile. And even going so far as to label Israel lo-ami, meaning not my people. There was also a second label that the Lord gave to faithless Israel. And it was lo-ruchmah, which means no pity, or I don't pity them. However, God said a time would come when the people of Israel would recognize their unfaithfulness and sincerely repent. God would in turn show pity to Israel. He would shower them with his mercy. And from being a people who, because of the rebellion, God viewed as not my people, God would take them back. And they would again be his set-apart and favored people. So the question for us is, by what right can Paul apply those Hosea passages to Gentiles when clearly it's all about Israel? In order to answer that important question, we're going to need to take a little detour today. Now, in modern Christian Bible study, there are several approved ways to approach studying and interpreting, applying Holy Scripture. And this is known among academics and church government as hermeneutics. Now, I'm not going to go into the several ways to interpret and apply God's Word except to say that allegory is one of the approved hermeneutical methods. Allegory is, in modern church settings, hands down the most widely employed method of Bible interpretation and and, and study because in the hands of a trained or maybe just a, a naturally skilled orator, it can be used to lead his or her audience to whatever or wherever the orator wants to take them. Allegorical interpretation and presentation means that a story is told about some Bible passages that express a hidden or an underlying meaning of those passages. 
but which does also does not reflect the plain meaning of those same words. There is nothing wrong with allegory in principle. The problem comes when scripture is taken completely out of context and or the plain meaning of the passage is said to have been replaced or overridden by the teacher's take or the pastor's take on an underlying hidden meaning. That, for instance, is how Christianity is able to interpret the many (laughs) direct mentions of Israel in the Bible as actually meaning the church. Allegory. Now, Jews, too, employ hermeneutics when studying the Bible. And so it's nothing new. Christians did not invent it. When Paul went to the Academy of Gamaliel for his religious training, he would have been taught in depth what I'm about to teach you in brief. Jewish Bible interpreters have numerous, well thought out, long established ways to dissect Bible passages in order to extract meaning. I'm going to give you the four best known ways, but be aware there are a number of other Jewish study and interpretation principles I'm not going to be sharing with you today. These four methods of study and interpretation are known as Peshat, Ramez, Drash, and Sod. Now, Peshat means to interpret and teach in the plainest, most straightforward sense of the scripture taken within its context. The passage says what it means, it means what it says. Ramez means that the scriptures hint at something more something deeper than the plainest sense of the words that they seem to mean. It goes beyond the elementary level on into the philosophical level. Thus, Ramez most closely resembles the allegorical style of preaching seen in modern Western churches, although it's not precisely the same thing. And I'm going to show you the difference shortly. Drash is more like a discussion or an exposition of the pertinent Bible passages that often brings in various external sources. Sources like rabbinical rulings, historical records, in other words, Bible history. Maybe some long-held customs and certainly debate. It more closely resembles what we might call exegetical Bible study, which is what we do here at Seed of Abraham. We are more familiar with this form of Bible interpretation when it's called Midrash. And finally there is Sod. Now Sod means secret. Sod is the preferred way of Kabbalah, that Jewish mysticism with all of its numerology and multi-level spiritual planes, Paul would have been familiar with all of these methods. And in his letters, and please hear this, 
In his letters, he uses different methods at various times in his interpretations of Bible passages. So what's the point? The point's this. Paul's method of interpretation of Hosea chapter 2, making what in plain sense, Peshat, in the plain sense, is entirely about Israel, also applied to Gentiles, is easily identifiable as Remez, the Remez style. That is, the scripture passage hints at something deeper. However, much of what we've been reading in the past few chapters of the book of Romans has been Paul interpreting and teaching in the drash method of study. Now recall I've shown you that Paul's straw man and Paul's way of having his straw man state a theological principle, usually a Jewish tradition. And then Paul refuting it using standard rabbinical terms like heaven forbid or may it never be. This is a well-established method used by rabbis and it's comparable to what we find in the Jewish Talmud. But most commonly in Romans, most commonly, not entirely, Paul uses the Peshat method of Bible interpretation, the plain meaning sense of it when he quotes and then comments on Old Testament scripture. So here's the thing for you to understand. When reading any of Paul's letters, and especially in Romans, he tends to quote Old Testament Bible passages and then interpret them according to one or the other of these four interpretation methods I've just told you about. That is, Paul is all about demonstrating that everything to do with redemption, including the nature and purpose of Messiah, comes from the Old Testament because that's what he had. The Old Testament was the Bible for Paul. No New Testament existed. He is using the Torah and the prophets as his primary reference sources to prove the validity of Yeshua of Nazareth as the God-sent Messiah and to explain that now that he has come, what does it mean? But an even bigger challenge for Paul is to prove that Gentiles are included in in this redemption and that's how God always intended it. Now one of the several reasons then that Paul can be so confusing to Christians, and especially to Gentile Christian scholars, is that they're unaware of, or they're just unfamiliar with, the various Jewish Bible interpretation methods and principles that were in vogue in Paul's day. One time, Paul is interpreting an Old Testament passage in its plainest sense. The next time, he is interpreting it more philosophically even allegorically. Another time he's using other sources of evidence than the Bible, like Jewish tradition, Halakha, and rolling it all together 
to make and to prove his point. Now most Jews in his time perfectly well knew the differences. They could better understand his intent, although due to Paul's intellectual level, it was often very complex and challenging. But Gentiles, oh man, they were nearly hopelessly lost, overwhelmed, and they depended on their Jewish friends to help them understand things. See, we do not see this same writing style or method of biblical interpretation with any other New Testament writer. Because Paul was the only classically trained Jewish theologian among the several New Testament writers. That's it. He was the only one. And he was formally trained in the ways of the Pharisees, the rabbis, at an elite school. Listen, Peter, he was just a common fisherman. Luke, well, he was intelligent and he was educated, but it was as a physician and as a writer, not as a theologian. James, like his brother Yeshua, he was just a country boy. He was a blue-collar craftsman. He was a carpenter's son. John. John was the son of a family of fishermen. And in time, he became more of a Jewish holy man, of which there were many in his day. So if our intent is to actually understand Paul, and not just try to prove a doctrine we believe in, we have to begin by understanding how to read Paul. See, these various methods of Bible interpretation that Paul used were like tools in his toolbox. He had a wrench, he had pliers, he had a screwdriver, a hammer, a paintbrush with a few more tools at his disposal. And, and he would choose the right tool at the right moment to help explain his theology. He switched interpretation tools rather naturally, just like a skilled craftsman would. It was second nature to him due to his extensive religious training. As Bible students, we need to be able to recognize and identify which of the several different Bible interpretation methods Paul is using at any particular moment in his letters because he bases his entire understanding of Christ upon the Old Testament scriptures. Why is that? Because the gospel is itself an Old Testament gospel. There's no such thing as a New Testament gospel. That designation is the invention of a Gentile church system that is partly anti-Semitic and partly ignorant of the New Testament culture, which was 100% Jewish. So, understanding now that in Romans chapter 9, verses 25 and 26, Paul is using the remez, 
Bible interpretation method to interpret Hosea chapter 2. Let's continue with Romans 9.27 and let's see how he interprets yet another Old Testament scripture passage. This one will be taken from the prophet Isaiah. So open your Bibles to Romans 9.27. Romans chapter 9, verse 27. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is on page 1412. But Yeshua, Isaiah... Referring to Israel, cries out, Even if the number of people in Israel is as large as the number of grains of sand by the sea, only a remnant will be saved. For Adonai will fulfill his word on the earth with certainty and without delay. Also, Yeshua said earlier, If Adonai Zevaot had not left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, we would have resembled Gomorrah. So what are we to say? This. The Gentiles, even though they were not striving for righteousness, have obtained righteousness. But it is a righteousness grounded in trusting. However, Israel, even though they kept pursuing a Torah that offers righteousness, did not reach what the Torah offers. Why? Because they did not pursue righteousness as being grounded in trusting. But as if it were grounded in doing legalistic works. So they stumbled over the stone that makes people stumble. As the Tanakh puts it, Look, I am laying in Zion a stone that will make people stumble, a rock that will trip them up. But he who rests his trust on it will not be humiliated. Verses 27 and 28 are a passage taken from Isaiah chapter 10. And verse 29 is a passage taken from Isaiah chapter 1. Now because I'm spending some time today showing you the importance of learning some techniques about how to read Paul and also how to identify which of the four basic methods of scripture interpretation Paul has chosen to use. We're going to take the time to read more of these chapters from which these short Old Testament scripture passages were taken. Now remember, one of the principles of Bible interpretation and communication as used by Jewish teachers and rabbis and scholars was that when a person was debating or instructing on a subject and they used a scripture passage as the proof text, the person would only use a brief portion of that scripture passage and expect the reader or the listener to know, or at least to go then find out, what the rest of the passage said because all of it applied. The entire passage was the intended context, not merely the little abbreviated portion that was written down for reference. However, know that the abbreviated passage we see in Paul's letter was from Isaiah 10, 22 and 23. So let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 10. 
Open up your Bibles, please, to Isaiah chapter 10. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's on page 451. Isaiah chapter 10. We're going to read the first... We're going to, Well, let's see. We're going to read... Yeah, the first 25 verses. Woe to all those who enact unjust decrees and draft oppressive legislation to deprive the impoverished... Uh, impoverished of justice and rob my poor, my people's poor of their rights, looting widows, preying on orphans. What will you do on the day of punishment when calamity comes from afar? To whom will you flee for help? Where will you leave your wealth so as to not squat among the prisoners or fall among the slain? But even after all this, his anger remains, his upraised hand still threatens. O Asher, the rod expressing my anger, the club in their hands is my fury. I'm sending him against a hypocritical nation, ordering him to march against a people who enrage me, to take the spoil and the plunder and trample them down like mud in the street. That's not what Asher intends, that's not what they think. Rather, they mean to destroy, to cut down nation after nation. For their king says, aren't all my commanders kings? Hasn't Kalno suffered like Karkmesh? Hamat like Arpad? Shomron like Damascus? Just as my hand reached the kingdoms of non-gods with more images than in Jerusalem and Samaria, so won't I do to Jerusalem and her non-gods what I did to Samaria and her idols? Therefore, when Adonai has done everything he intends to do to Mount Zion and Jerusalem, I will punish the king of Asher for the boasting that comes from his proud heart and from reveling in his arrogant looks. For he says, With my own strong arm, I have done this. With my wisdom, I'm so clever. I erase the boundaries between peoples. I plunder their stores for the future. As a mighty man, I subjected the inhabitants. My hand found the riches of the peoples like a nest. As one gathers abandoned eggs, I gathered the whole earth. Not one wing fluttered, not one beak opened or let out a chirp. Should the axe glorify itself over the one who chops with it? Should the saw magnify itself over the one who moves it? It's as if a stick could wave the hand that raises it up. Or as if a wooden staff could lift a person who's not made of wood. Therefore the Lord, Adonai Zebaot, will send leanness to his well-fed ones. And in place of his glory, a fire will be kindled that will burn and burn. The light of Israel would become a fire, and his Holy One a flame, burning, devouring his thorns, his briars in a single day. The glory of his forest and of his fertile land, he will consume body and soul, like an invalid wasting away. So few forest trees will remain, a child could list them. On that day, 
the remnant of Israel, those of the house of Jacob who escaped, will no longer rely on the man who struck them down, but will truly rely on Adonai, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For although your people, Israel, are like the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with justice. Adonai Elohim Zebaot will bring about this decreed destruction throughout all the land. Therefore, Adonai Elohim Zebaot says, My people living in Zion, don't be afraid of Asher. Even when he strikes you with a stick and raises his staff against you the way it was in Egypt. For in but a little while, my fury will end and my anger will have destroyed them. Once again, as with Hosea chapter 2, this entire scripture passage in Isaiah is about who? Israel. The only involvement of Gentiles in all of this has to do with Assyria, which God is using to bring his wrath upon Israel for their rebellion against him. Rabbi Shulam makes a great point about this section of Romans chapter 9. It is that when we back away and we look at it from, I would call it the mid-distance, we see that in Romans 9, 14 through 23, Paul is making it clear that neither God's election of Israel or anybody else for that matter, nor his rejection of Israel or of anybody else for that matter, is dependent upon the human will or human activity. It's always dependent upon God's mercy. Always. But then in verse 24 we see that because of the way God elects those to his kingdom, that is, God has full liberty to elect whomever he chooses, according to whatever criteria he chooses, that it is not only Jews, but also Gentiles who can be elected. Thus Paul is showing through Old Testament scripture that the elect are now composed of certain Gentiles and a remnant of Jews. The bottom line is an unexpected one. Israel was elected not, not for the purpose of excluding all other people, Gentiles, from election. Rather, Israel was elected that they would facilitate the inclusion of all the peoples of the world in conjunction with God's plan of redemption for the entire earth. This reality, however, causes Paul another difficulty. Now he has to tell his readers and listeners that while all that he just said is true, only some of Israel, a remnant, will be saved at this time. This does not change God's plan for the final, for the complete salvation of all Israel at a later time. 
This Paul deals with starting in Romans chapter 10, but he mainly deals with this matter in Romans chapter 11. But back in Romans 9, 27 and 28, which refers to Isaiah 10, we see that the remnant of Jews that Paul is saying will be saved as a result of their trust in Messiah, he is equating with the remnant of Israel that will return to the Holy Land after the Assyrian exile. So once again, Paul is interpreting these Old Testament scriptures not in the plain sense, Peshat, rather he's using the Ramez interpretation method. He sees the remnant of Israel in Isaiah 10 that was saved by God's mercy from death and from destruction at the hands of the Assyrians as a hint, a hint at an even deeper level that it is referring to the remnant of Israel that will be saved from death and destruction at God's own hand, God's wrath at a later time. And it has to do with their rejection of the Messiah. Now is when I want to point out the difference between usual Christian allegorical preaching and the Jewish Bible interpretation method of Remez, which on the surface look more similar than different. The difference is this. In Remez, both the plain sense of the text, the pshat, as it's written, and the deeper meaning, the Remez, are assumed and retained. Digging beneath the surface of the text does not eliminate the surface meaning. It is not an issue of one or the other. Often, however, when a Christian teacher or a pastor allegorizes a Bible passage, it is meant to overturn, it is meant to replace the plain sense as it was originally written. So, for instance, since the church allegorizes the blessings given to Israel as now belonging to the church, then every positive mention of Israel in the Bible is now said to actually mean church. Thus, Israel no longer means Israel. Israel's eliminated. It's scratched out. It's replaced by the church. But for Paul, it can be and should be seen as both. In the case of Israel, it's meant in two different ways. It's meant on two different levels. Both valid, both continuing to exist. Thus it is with Paul's point concerning a remnant of Israel being saved. From the plain sense of the words of Isaiah 10, only a remnant of Israel will be saved from the destruction of the Assyrian exile. But also, from the Ramez sense, only a remnant of Israel will be saved from another and different destruction because they did not accept God's Messiah. The common point between the two events then is this. Both the destruction of Israel at the hand of Assyria, now this is a past event, 
of course, in Israel's history. And the destruction of Israel at the hand of God, a future event, even to us, are both due to God's wrath. That's the common point. Assyria was merely the instrument of God's wrath on Israel. Further, the reason that a remnant will survive is not because the remnant of Israel is somehow better, somehow more moral, somehow having more merit than those who were destroyed. Rather, in both the case of the Assyrian remnant and the case of the later remnant that's going to be saved by their trust in Christ, it's all going to be a result of God's mercy that they survived. God's mercy. So Paul, in Romans 9.29, backs up his use of Isaiah 10 to prove his point now by referring to Isaiah 1. But before he does, there's an interesting little sentence there in verse 28 that we shouldn't overlook. Still part of Isaiah 10, this verse says in paraphrase that this destruction of Israel by God's wrath and allowing only a remnant to survive is not only certain, but it's going to happen without delay. Now the reason that Paul included this verse is because he truly felt that God's wrath, the destruction of Israel, the destruction of the remnant, uh, rather the creation of the remnant of Israel, and then the return of Yeshua, were very, very near. This was imminent. Paul thought it could happen tonight in his day. Right now. At any moment, Paul expected this to happen. This belief of his heavily influenced his thinking and his message in all of his letters. All of them. Now no doubt Paul died a bit surprised that Christ had not yet returned. And you know something? If we could speak to him right now, he would probably tell us that he is stupefied that 2,000 years later, Christ still has not returned. Well, let's expand on Isaiah 1. This is the proof text that Paul used in verse 29 to back up what he has just explained now from Isaiah 10. So we're going to read Isaiah 1, 1 through 14. So just turn a few pages back. Hopefully you kept your finger there. And we're going to read the first 14 verses of Isaiah 1. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 435. This is the vision of Yeshiao, the son of Amotz, vision of Isaiah, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem during the days of uh, Uziel, Yotam, Ahaz, Yeskiel, the kings of Judah. Hear, heaven, listen, earth, for Adonai is speaking. I raised and brought up children, but they rebelled against me. An ox 
knows its owner. A donkey, its master's stall. But Israel does not know. My people do not reflect. Oh, sinful nations. A people weighed down by iniquity. Descendants of evildoers. Immoral children. They have abandoned Adonai. Spurned the Holy One of Israel. Turned their backs on Him. Where should I strike you next? As you persist in rebelling. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is diseased. From the sole of the foot to the head, there's nothing healthy. There's only wounds and bruises and festering sores that haven't been dressed or bandaged or softened up with oil. Your land's desolate. Your cities are burned to the ground. Foreigners devour your land in your presence. It's as desolate as if it was overwhelmed by floods. The daughter of Zion is left like a, like a shack in a vineyard, like a shed in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. If Adonai Zevaot had not left us a tiny, tiny remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have resembled Gomorrah. Hear what Adonai says, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to God's Torah, you people of Gomorrah. Why are all those sacrifices offered to me? Asks Adonai. I'm fed up with bird offerings of rams, the fat of fattened animals. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Yes, you come to appear in my presence, but who asked you to do this? To trample through my courtyards. Stop bringing worthless grain offerings. They're like disgusting incense to me. Rosh Hodesh, Shabbat, calling convocations. I can't stand the evil together with your assemblies. Everything in me hates your Rosh Hodesh and your festivals. They're a burden to me. I'm tired of putting up with them. Whoa. I call that a little more than a tongue lashing. The context of this passage is Israel's rebellion and God's disgust with them. God is intent to destroy most of unfaithful Israel, leaving only a remnant to survive. Part of the reason for his disgust with Israel is that they have polluted his God-ordained feast days wrecked his Sabbaths with their own way of doing things. They've involved paganism now in their traditions. So God will not accept. He says, I don't care about your bird offerings. You don't do it the way I told you to do it. But notice there's a difference between what Paul quoted, if you look carefully now at your Bibles, there's a difference between what Paul has quoted in Romans 9.29 that's supposed to be representative actually of Isaiah 1.9 versus what Isaiah 1.9 actually says. 
In Romans 9.29, Paul speaks of a seed. He inserts the word seed that God allowed to survive, while the actual verse he is supposedly quoting in Isaiah 1.9 says that it will be a remnant that God will allow to survive. The word seed doesn't appear in Isaiah 1. So Paul is switching up on us now. He is now using the drash Bible method for interpreting 1.9 and not the remez that he's been using the last few verses. Drash makes Paul free to substitute a word to make his point. And he substitutes seed for remnant. Because those Israelites who survived God's wrath, the remnant, will indeed be seed, as in seed of Abraham. Paul, earlier in Romans chapter 4, established this halakhic principle, that is, it's a tradition or better, a religious ruling, if you would, that all real, all true Israelites must be seed of Abraham. And he defines seed of Abraham as all those who trust God and so trust in Messiah Yeshua. Thus the remnant of Israel plus some number of Gentiles are going to form God's elect. And all of God's elect he has determined he will see as seed of Abraham. The identifiable characteristic that makes the remnant the remnant and that separates some Gentiles from other Gentiles is their common trust in Yeshua as Messiah and nothing else. Verse 30 is Paul anticipating an objection to his contention that God's elect will henceforth include only some Jews, not all, not all Jews. Even more, the elector is going to include some Gentiles, not all Gentiles, some. Now remember, while Christianity rightly sees salvation as an individual by individual issue, Judaism in Paul's day and today sees salvation as a collective national issue. All the Jewish people or none of the Jewish people? And what sticks in the craw of the Jewish people in general is that while for millennia they have been striving as individuals and as a nation to obtain righteousness, these Gentiles have done no such thing. They're new to this party. So even though the Gentiles had put forth no effort whatsoever to attain righteousness, God in His mercy gave it to them anyway. And it wasn't because Gentiles tried to keep the law of Moses that they obtained this righteousness. It was only because of God's mercy upon them based on, their, on the Gentiles' trust in Yeshua. That's it. On the other hand, says verse 31, 
the Jews kept pursuing the law that offers righteousness, but they never reached what the law offers. Now, if we stopped reading right here, we would assume that Paul is speaking about a works righteousness way to salvation that the Jews had opened to them, or at least they tried for. In other words, it sort of sounds as though keeping the law of Moses indeed would have given righteousness to those Jews who properly did the law and they would have been saved. That is not what it says. And that's not what he's saying. Rather, says Paul, the issue is that while pursuing the law is good, it must be done based on trusting rather than on one's own merit from performing the law flawlessly. I think David Stern's Complete Jewish Bible captures the essence of what Paul is saying here perfectly. Romans 9.32 Why? Because they did not pursue righteousness as being grounded in trusting, but instead as if it were grounded in doing legalistic works. They stumbled over the stone that makes people stumble. See, it's rather interesting that years later, Isaiah 28.16, which is what Paul is quoting as verse 33 in Romans 9, came to be understood among the rabbis as a messianic prophecy. And indeed it is because this stone Israel stumbled over is identified as Emmanuel. God is with us. That we can believe that this stone that they stumbled over is Yeshua. Listen to Matthew 1.18 through 1 verse 18 through 23. Here's how the birth of Yeshua the Messiah took place. When his mother Miriam was engaged to Joseph before they were married, she was found to be pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Her husband-to-be, Joseph, was a man who did what was right. So he made plans to break the engagement quietly rather than put her to public shame. But while he was thinking about this, an angel of Adonai appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Miriam home with you as your wife, for what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Yeshua, which means God saves, because he will save his people from their sins. All this will happen in order to fulfill what Adonai said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and bear a son and they will call him Emmanuel. God is with us. Let's move on to Romans chapter 10. We're just going to read the first four verses of Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that's page 1413. Brothers, my heart's deepest desire and my prayer to God for Israel is for their salvation. For I can testify to their zeal for God. But it's not based on correct understanding. For since they're unaware of God's way 
of making people righteous and instead seek to set up their own, they have not submitted themselves to God's way of making people righteous. Because the goal at which the Torah aims is the Messiah who offers righteousness to everyone who trusts. The opening of chapter 10 not only expresses the reason for Paul giving up every desirable thing in life in order to travel, to put himself in danger, to live a life of poverty and uncertainty when he didn't have to. But also explains why Israel has put itself in danger when they didn't have to. Paul is a man of action. He believes so strongly in the power of the gospel and that Yeshua is the righteousness that the gospel points to that little else in life matters to him but that his brethren of Israel would accept that message they would be delivered from the curse of the law and the curse of the law is eternal death he notes why Israel has put itself in such danger and it's not because they don't care to know God In fact, he personally testifies to Israel's zeal for Yehovah. This zeal for God is not merely Paul's personal opinion. The leader of the Messianic movement, James, brother of Yeshua, testified to it as well. Back in Acts 21, 18-20, we read this. The next day, Shaul... Paul and the rest of us went to Yaakov, that's James, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, Paul described in detail each of the things God had done among the Gentiles through his efforts. On hearing it, they praised God, but they also said to him, You see, brother, how many tens of thousands of believers there are among the Judeans, and they're all zealots for the Torah. So Israel falling short of what is required of God for righteousness is not because of lack of effort. Not because of insincerity on their part. In some sense, Paul shouldn't even have had to say such a thing because it was self-evident. If Israel was admittedly so zealous for God and zealousness brought righteousness, then why would a Messiah be necessary at all? If being fervent believers in the God of Israel was the requirement for salvation, then why would any typical Jew who observed Sabbath and endured travel to the temple from far away for Passover, who circumcised their sons, prayed three times per day, brought their first fruits to the priests, sacrificed at the altar. Why would they need a Savior? Paul answers that question in verse 2. He says, All this zeal of his brethren is not based on correct understanding. Zeal and devotion and commitment only have value if they're connected with the correct goal. 
Please note that nowhere here or anywhere else in Romans or in any of Paul's letters does Paul ever imply that doing the law of Moses is wrong or that doing the law of Moses is misdirected zeal. Never do we hear that. Rather, as Paul continues in verse 2, the problem is that the people of Israel are unaware of God's way of making people righteous and instead they throw all their effort into attaining righteousness their own way. What is Paul meaning by doing it their own way? By doing the law? Not exactly. Let's back up a second to review the matter of Judaism in Jewish society in this era. See, Jewish, Jewish tradition, halakha, was the driver of Jewish society. For the religious leadership that operated the synagogues and for the Jewish people who regularly interacted with, with it, halakha was considered as the proper interpretation of the law of Moses and thus reflected proper behavior for Jews. It is the equivalent of Christian denominational doctrines. It's the same thing. However, in reality, any actual legitimate connection between the law of Moses and Jewish tradition was a pretty weak one. It was so weak that Yeshua on more than one occasion reprimanded the synagogue leadership, the Pharisees, for their halakha that had gone far afield from both the letter and the spirit of the law of Moses. It was halakha that the Jews followed in their quest for righteousness. Matthew 15, 1-9 Then some parshim, Pharisees, and Torah teachers from Jerusalem came to Yeshua and asked him, Why does your disciples break the traditions of the elders? They don't do nethayat yadayim, they don't do the hand washing before they eat. And he answered, Indeed, why do you break the commandment of God by your traditions? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his mother or father must be put to death. You say, if anyone says to his father or mother, Well, I've promised to give to God what I might have used to help you. Then he is rid of his duty to honor his father and mother. Thus by your tradition you make null and void the word of God. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is useless. Because they teach man-made rules as if they were doctrines. Paul says that the proper pursuit of righteousness is contained in the Torah, the law, but righteousness is not the Torah itself. He puts it this way 
in Romans chapter 10 verse 4. For the goal at which the Torah aims is the Messiah who offers, offers righteousness for everyone who trusts. Now this English translation of the Greek captures the truest essence of Paul's statement. However, believers are more used to seeing it and if you don't have a complete Jewish Bible, this is probably how you're going to see it in yours, as this verse saying, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, as I pointed out on numerous occasions, the gold standard among Christian academics for commentary on the Book of Romans is the one created by C.E.B. Cranfield. However, his and the fine works of other Christian scholars tend to go unheard by church governments especially when it comes to issues about the law of Moses here is Cranfield's commentary on the meaning of the phrase Christ is the end of the law in this verse and I'm quoting him the early church fathers seem generally have to have tended towards it meaning a combination of fulfillment and goal. Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, and Bengel all understood the verse as expressing a positive relationship between Christ and the law. So we conclude that the Greek noun telos should be understood in the sense of Christ is the end of the law in the sense that he is the goal, the aim, the intention, the real meaning, and the substance. And apart from him, it cannot be properly understood at all. This is the sense that I know to be the truth. And that seed of Abraham stands by because no other sense of it is warranted grammatically or is intellectually honest. Nor does any other sense of Christ as the end of the law match with Christ's own words and his admonitions as concerns the law of Moses. In modern English especially, you see, the word end almost always means to terminate something, to abolish something. But see, end, the word end, has historically also meant something else. The goal. We still memorialize the, that sense of the word end in a well-worn expression in the Western world. The end justifies the means. End does not mean abolish. Uh, doesn't mean to terminate. End means the goal, the purpose, the aim. And that is exactly the sense that is meant in Romans 10.4. And we'll continue with Romans 10 next week.